If you're with us online, want to welcome you. Uh, we're excited that you're here as we have a great morning together kicking off a series that we've called How to Be, and we're going to be talking about relationships over the next several weeks, and you can see here that I am not alone. Everybody say hi to Emma. Hi, guys. Emma is our pastor of junior high, and she is stinking awesome. Uh, she is killing it. In fact, uh, there's no better place to serve than in junior high. I always, I always say revival, when it happens, it happens with the there. youth first. Yeah. So, man, Cheer it's an amazing place. She's killing it. Now, all, a lot of our pastors are going to be teaching with us over the next several weeks, but many of you have not gotten to know Emma, so I just thought I'd invite her out here to introduce herself. So. Yeah. Well, I'm Emma. Hello, everyone. I've been a part of North Point probably for about eight years, been on staff for three, yep. and uh, graduated from Fresno Pacific, and now I'm here. I'm junior high pastor, so I get the privilege of hanging out with junior high students. By the way, if you are in junior high right now, you should have a, head over to service right now, because Pastor Collins, our high school pastor, he's over there hanging out with junior Every high. Every Sunday at this time, right? Yep. Yeah, junior yeah. high. Yep. Yeah, sweet. Yeah, and then if there's one thing you gotta know about me, is it I have the most precious dog. Her name is Honeybee. There's a picture. It's coming. Uh, I know, she is delicious in every which way. Oh, you eat your dog. No, and she's like, oh, I'm sorry. perfect. She goes by honey, um, oh. and she doesn't make me chase after her and you Oh, know, yeah, you break foot. your foot no, chasing no, this no. dog. That was a slam, wasn't it? Oh, dude. dude. But now, are those eyeglasses prescription, or no. is that for fun? For fun. Oh, she okay. lets me dress her up. I she love loves it. it. I love she's it. She's so good. That is a cute yeah. dog, don't you think? Golden doodle. Any golden doodlers? Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's thank Emma for coming out. She's going to be coming out to teach yeah. later. Yeah. Love you. Yeah. You're amazing. Hey, before we get going and uh, dive into the message this morning, I want to draw your attention to an emphasis that we're going to make over the next six weeks as we near the final quarter of the year. That is a big deal for us as a church. Now, as you know, if you remember, if you've been around here, at least since January, at the end of January, Vision Weekend, we made some tremendous faith goals together, really wanting to see the Lord do some tremendous things. And we voted, you'll remember, we actually passed an annual budget that best reflected two things. Number one, it reflected um, responsible stewardship, because if you'll remember, we actually came in under budget last year. We didn't quite make the budget with our giving, but luckily we didn't spend uh, you know, past the income. So we came in under budget, but we wanted to project for this year a budget that reflected significant faith goals. And so if you remember, I said this year, we're gonna plant a new church out in Kerman and we're gonna start doing ministry out there. That church launched at Easter and with increasing attendance, it's going well. Uh, Spanish ministry, if you remember, we said we wanna start for those that speak Spanish or bilingual. We wanted to increase our membership and of course, baptize more people than ever. Of course, none of this even has to do with, if you recall, uh, in the spring, we kicked off a come and see campaign and that campaign is to expand our campus. And we're submitting plans, of course, to the city and waiting on permission to get bids and then build right now. But it has been amazing that uh, even with the Come and See campaign, we said we need $4.5 million pledged over the next three years of people giving. We said, we want to do this debt-free. And as of to date, we are doing this debt-free. You have pledged $4.5 million. Um, to make this happen. So that's awesome. So I guess I just want to say, guys, it is clear that God is doing some awesome stuff. I said we've launched Kerman. 
We've started our Spanish ministry. It happens at 9 a.m. every Sunday here in the student ministry building. We didn't expect, and on top of those things we planned for, we just opened a new venue that we're calling our Bullard Campus, uh, which is going to be our Lifeway Chapel. Pastor Ronnie is over there preaching right now, this service, out at Lifeway, but that's going to become one of the venues for the teaching here at North Point. Um, You know, speaking of just what we were hoping to do, guys, do you realize we are just ending summer? Check this out. We have baptized so far over 100 people just finishing the summer. It's awesome. There, there are not many things you can measure as a church, but one of the things you can measure is baptism, because that's a symbol of people saying, man, I've given my life to Jesus. We can measure that, you know, over 70 people have now become new members of our church, so it's cool that God is doing some really great things, and I love saying that to you. But with that, I want to alert you and ask for your prayerful participation Although it's been amazing that we've acquired, you know, these assets and that God has done this amazing work and we're expanding the ministry, I have to say that our general fund that is our regular worship giving, that is the weekly tithes and offering that people just consistently give faithfully every week, that that actually is significantly under budget. And I wanted to make sure that you knew that. In fact, we're about $400,000 under budget. Now, It is very important. In fact, we've had to pull reserves to be able to pay staff and pay pastors. We've had to pull from reserves, and that reserves very much needs to be replenished. Now, I'm excited about all that God is doing, but I am aware that about 80% of our congregation, it's actually above 80%, that attend regularly and faithfully, you know, there's no record of any consistent giving. The church financially is supported by a very small percentage of people, which means there's a whole lot of people that come week in and week out for the ministry that's being offered, but they haven't learned the habit of generosity and the habit of giving a tithes or an offering. And guys, I just want to say this to you. We believe God's going to make a way. God does make a way, but I need you to understand Money doesn't come from the clouds. It comes from the crowds. It comes from the crowds of people who are saying, in obedience to God, I'm going to do what he said to do in his word. Now, God has chosen to work that way. He always works through people. In fact, the scripture says we are his body. We are his hands and feet. And I want to take the time just to address that because knowing that over 80% of the congregation doesn't give regularly, but they come to church regularly, I'm just asking you, would you please choose to change this? In faith, as an act of obedience, I'm just directly asking if you're not in the habit of giving consistently and faithfully, the scripture says in the Lord's day you bring your tithes and your offering, that you begin to give consistently. So over the next many weeks, I'm going to have people sharing their testimonies just before we teach, and uh, people will just be sharing how God has moved them. But I wanted to direct your attention to this insert, if I can, for just a minute that I'm going to have in your notes every week for the next several weeks as we emphasize this. Because here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping we will close the gap on our worship giving, and we will end the year hitting our budget. Now, you say, why? Well, I'm just going to tell you straight up. Next year, I'm going to be challenging you to faith giving that's more than this year because we are expanding, because we have new expenses, because now we're preaching the gospel in four different locations outside of this. God's doing a work, and it takes giving to do that. And so, but i got to tell you, it's a lot harder to ask you to up the ante 
and ask our church to up the ante when we're not even hitting budget. So I want to close the gap. And I want to be able to say, Lord, we've, we've done it through your people. Now, people ask, why should I give? Now, first of all, just understand, Scripture says when you give, give, the Greek word is hilariously. Literally, it's hilarious. Bible says when you give, you don't give begrudgingly, you give with laughter. I love this. I get to give. God says that's how he wants us to give, and so people sometimes ask, well, why should I give gladly or hilariously? And I just say this. Here are seven reasons. I just, I I want you to know, I just drew this up myself just as a teaching moment for you. Seven biblical reasons why God says to give, and these aren't all of them, but this is what just came to my mind in a matter of about 15 minutes looking at God's word. Number one, because God says when you give financially, you actually prove your faith. He says your faith is actually demonstrated because you're putting your money where your mouth is. And see, Jesus knows that where your treasure is, there your heart is. And that's why he knows that, man, if he doesn't have your treasure, more than likely he really doesn't have your heart as religious as you might be. And it proves your faith. In fact, he says, you'll notice the scripture in Malachi, when talking specifically about tithes and offering in the Old Testament, he says, test me on this. Test me. Now, all through the Bible, God says, don't you ever test the Lord your God. And he says, don't test the Lord your God, don't test the Lord your God, don't test the Lord your God, until he gets to this point. And then he says, on this point, I want you to test me. I want you to test me. Which leads to the next thing. Giving grows your faith. Some of you are wondering, how do I become a person of faith or how do I grow in my relationship with Jesus? You start giving. Because by you giving, what you're doing is you're saying, Jesus, I trust you more than I trust that bank account number. And so I'm gonna start giving it away and I'm gonna trust you to provide everything back that I need. And that is an amazing step of faith. And people that have taken that step and seen God work, it's amazing how their faith grows. Why should you give gladly? Because it'll make you more like Jesus, number three. Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave. You're never more like God than when you give. And God says, I, I wanna, it's not, God says, I'm not about raising money as much as I am about raising kids. And I'm raising you to be like me. It keeps your life focused on him, past, present, and future. It ensures a legacy. It leads to joy, God says. It gets God's blessing, he says. So there's just various reasons. So I'm gonna ask you to prayerfully just consider these biblical reasons and just be praying on that and thinking about that and change that with me. Let's close the gap this year as we get into the final quarter. But then you say, well, how? Pastor, you say, I I can't give 10% of my income or what is called a tithe in the Bible. A tithe is a tenth. You say, it's just impossible. Then here's how I challenge you. If you just look at the bottom of the flip side of this page, it says start somewhere. I would begin by asking you this, if you're not in the regular habit of giving, that every week you come and just decide, I'm gonna give a flat, flat amount. Every week I'm gonna give 10 bucks. Every week I'm gonna get one less Frappuccino. Every week I'm gonna come to church and I'm gonna give him $10, that's $40 a month. And then I challenge you at the end of the year to look back and calculate what percentage of your income is that. And then that's where you start your tithe. Maybe it's 1%, maybe it's 2%, maybe it's 3%, but you start learning how to tithe. That's what we call giving toward the tithe. You begin to take steps to do that. Or you pick a flat percent. You say, I can't start at 10, but I can start at three. Or I can start at four, and you just begin to do that. But we wanna make it easy. See, scripture says, 
It says the people should not think that small beginnings are unimportant. Listen, don't say because I can't do it all, I'm not gonna do it at all. Small beginnings are important. One step in front of the other. And so I'm just asking you, would you join me as a church and let's make a change and let's turn this around for the year so that we can go into next year saying, man, we are moving full steam ahead. How's that sound to you? That sound good? So I just ask you to, to do that and pray with me. In fact, I'd love to pray with you just right now. Father, Lord, we just submit this to you and we just ask that uh, for those that are here and they're a church family, they make this place their home, that you would really bring a sense of uh, conviction and obedience and joy that they give hilariously, Lord, that that joy comes from being obedient to you and following you and knowing that we can do that in faith. So we ask that you just uh, guide us, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Now, if you're not quite sure how to give, you'll see a QR code uh, that's coming up on the screen. In fact, they're going to hold that there for just a minute. You can scan it with your camera, and it'll take you to our website. But the big thing is, we just, there's an envelope, of course, in your bulletin. We just want to make sure that you have opportunity uh, to do that. Now, let's get going on relationships. Sound good? All right. I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 5. If you grab your notes, if you just grab your notes, well, you can leave the QR thing up there. But I'll just start reading this to you. Matthew 5, it says, Jesus says, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it was said to people long ago, do not murder. But anyone who murders will be subject to what? Judgment. But then Jesus ups the ante. Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, what's the word? Raka is answerable to the religious court. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of where? Hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you could be thrown into prison. And then Jesus ends it with this. He says, I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, listen. Christianity is about nothing if it is not about change. And that is, I mean, if you don't see change in your life, it could be that you're not really in the kingdom of God. That is certainly what is being taught here. See, the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of heaven. It's constantly there. If you read Matthew 5 to 7, you read it and you're going to notice the kingdom of God again, the kingdom of God again, the kingdom of God again, that there is a kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven is a gift which is given to those who entrust their lives over to Jesus and who come under his royal power. And when you come under Jesus' royal power, your life begins to change. Why? Because here's what happens. God begins to work a righteousness in you. That is a quality of character supernaturally through his Holy Spirit that begins to alter everything in your life. People ask, how do I change? You don't worry about change. You invite the Holy Spirit to come and live in your life and he'll begin to work out change, I promise you. 
Now, by the way, what he begins to do in your life is all in verses 20 and 21. He says, in fact, I'm going to give you a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then everything he says following this, you notice, is all about relationships. So he picks up, he says, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, don't murder. And I'm telling you, if you do, you're subject to judgment. But I tell you, if you're just angry with your brother, you're subject to judgment. If you say raka, you're answerable to the religious court. Anyone who says you fool, boy, you're in danger of the fire of where? Hell. What's he saying here? Listen to me. Let's review. He's saying, if you say raka, and anyone who says you fool, the Greek word for you fool is you morose. Just say morose. You learn something. When you call somebody a morose, you're saying you're an idiot. You're a fool. You're liable to judgment. Not joking around, but you're serious. Dude, you're an idiot. Now, what this is telling us here, what Jesus is saying is, I can transform you in such a way that you don't act like this toward people. Jesus says Christians should relate differently. They should relate to people redemptively. We in the world should be bringing healing relationships to people. Jesus says, I can transform your relationships in such a way. And by the way, listen, transformed relationships is critical, don't you think? Because broken relationships are just a misery today. Now, we make fun of broken relationships all the time, don't we? Most of our situational comedies have to do with people yelling at each other or, or you know, yelling at, insulting one another, you know? Some of the funniest jokes are insults. How many of you would agree? They are. I recently looked at a book, a book of uh, giant insults, and it had some funny things. I gotta admit, I laughed out loud. I was looking at the book, and there was, it's a true story in history, Lady Nancy Astor... She said to Winston Churchill, if you were my husband, I'd poison your tea. Churchill said, Nancy, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. (laughs) That's great. That's funny. Broken relationships are a great source of funniness as long as you're reading about them. But when you experience that brokenness, that's not funny. A lot of people right now are miserable because of relationships. So you see, it's really no laughing matter. So what Jesus says, and you need to understand this, every person hearing my voice needs to understand this. Jesus says, my kingdom power in you can bring about a righteousness that transforms relationships. A righteousness that should be developed in the Christian's life. So he looks at the teachers of the law and he says, you fellas, you're supposed to be experts. Then he looks at the average people and says, but I can produce something in the average person that they would live dynamically. I get so tired of hearing non-believers talk about their negative experiences with Christians. And the only thing that I can fathom is that it's because so many Christians are walking religiously, but not vibrantly, not really relating to God truly, but piously. So he refers to the law, and let's just take a quick look at what he says. He says, uh, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, when Jesus uses this phrase, you have heard that it was said, 
You need to understand, he's not talking about the scripture. He's referring to the religious leader's interpretation of the scripture. And he points out here that when religious leaders look at the law of God, they look at it externally. They look at the external behavioristic interpretation of the law. So what the religious leaders were saying in Jesus' day is, as long as you haven't physically destroyed somebody's life, you're guiltless. Jesus comes in and he says, no way. Here's why. Because anytime you go to the Ten Commandments or you go to God's law, Jesus knew this, in the Bible, if you read God's law and it's put in the prohibitive form, meaning thou shall not, anytime it's put in the prohibitive form, you know that that always entails and enjoins the positive opposite. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? I don't get it. Well, let me give you an example. The Bible says in the Ten Commandments, thou shall not steal. What does that mean? Well, if it enjoins and entails the opposite, thou shalt not steal also means thou must be generous. Have you ever noticed if you go through the Old Testament, whenever somebody is not generous, God calls it robbery. Did you know that? In fact, we were just talking about tithes and offerings a few moments ago. And I'll just tell you, God says, if you're not regularly giving tithes and offerings, you're robbing me. He calls it stealing. So when it says thou shall not steal, it means you should be generous. In the same way, when this says you should not murder, it means something positive. What does it mean? Write this down, first thing. It means that every human person, every human being, is made in the likeness of God. And therefore, every human being, every human person is infinitely precious and of infinite value. Let me say that again. Because every human being is made in the likeness of God, every human being is infinitely precious and has infinite value. In other words, you could never look at somebody and and consider them just an object. You should never treat people as a thing. People are not meant to be abused or used. You should never use people as a means to the ends. Don't do that. And then he goes through and he gives these kingdom warnings for relationships. And he explains this unbelievable searching in convicting detail about what he means. And here's what he says, guys. I want to point this out to you real quick. Then Emma's going to come. He says, if you've done any of these four things, you're murdering. You ready? If you've done any of these four things, you're murdering. I'm going to show you why you can see this in the scripture. Number one, he says, don't ever treat somebody like a nobody. Write that down. Don't ever treat somebody like a nobody. You say, well, where does it say that? Well, because he says, if you treat somebody as raka. Now, raka literally means you nobody. Raka literally means you're a non-person. And I find this fascinating because have you ever been really angry at somebody and you're fighting with them and you're really upset, you're really mad and you're angry at them? Do you ever say to them, you're a non-person? You ever say that? No, of course you haven't. Nobody says that. When you're angry at somebody, what do you say? You say, you're an idiot. You're a fool. You're morose. But you don't say raka. Here's what's fascinating. What does Jesus mean when he says you are not to say raka? What he's talking about there, write this down, is the sin of indifference. The sin of indifference. Go ahead and write that down. He's talking about indifference. 
What is indifference? Indifference, it's scary because he's saying, listen, it says, it says you shouldn't murder, and it says, in other words, you don't directly, maliciously act toward a person, but Jesus is saying, listen, if you just neglect a person, if you just avoid a person, if you just see through somebody and act like they're not there, or if you just don't care about them, if you treat a person as if they're not there, Jesus says you're murdering them. Why? This is important, guys. Do we all understand here what indifference is? I've said this before, but let me say it again so that we're really clear in this church. Indifference is the seed form of hate. When you are indifferent towards somebody, you are hating them. Why? Because at least if you're mad at somebody, that's provoking your attention. You're not acting like they're not there. But when you pass people along and act like they're meaningless, their life has no value, that's the worst form of hate there could be. And then he goes on. And he also says, now, if you say you morose or you moron, you fool, you idiot. And what Jesus is saying here, it's important to get this, is he's saying also, you never slander anybody. Write that down. He says, if you slander somebody, you're murdering them. What Jesus is saying here is, here is the power of the tongue. And he's talking about, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about murdering their reputation. That's what he's talking about. You morose. Murdering their reputation. You know what that is? To murder somebody like this. It's to murder other people's confidence in that person. Or it's not just making them look bad and murdering other people's confidence in them, but it's murdering their confidence in themselves. You're an idiot. You're going to amount to nothing. Why? Why? Because listen, when you call somebody a moron, the only reason that you do that is because you hope they believe it. And I'm going to tell you, the moment you do that and you really say that to somebody, if you get them to believe that, you're murdering them, you're putting a dagger in their heart that no surgeon can remove. God says, watch out for that. To murder somebody is to murder their reputation. How much gossip do we do in the church? talking about people to other people. God says, don't you see what you're doing? You're murdering. You wonder why God says my blessing's not on your life. You wonder why you're struggling. And then he goes one step further because look at what he says. He says, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Then he says in verse 22, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother, anger, you know what that means? It's literally the word that says, write this down, don't ever let yourself swell up with poison. Don't let that happen. What's he talking about? He's talking about resentment. He's talking about holding a grudge. See, what Jesus understands is, look, I always use this illustration, but let me use it again. If I had an acorn up here, do you realize everything about that oak tree is right inside that acorn? Does everybody know that? If I had an acorn and I planted it, everything that is in that tree is already in that little acorn. And what Jesus is saying is, everything that is murder is involved in resentment. It's a kernel. It's a seed. Given the proper environment, given the right germination, that resentment can turn into murder. He says, so don't hold a grudge. 
See, the Christian understands that because the Christian can look at a murderer and say, in truth, I'm just as bad as you because I hold a grudge and I need to go to God for forgiveness. I need to get my life right. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think the Apostle Paul could say, this is an amazing statement. Let's look at it on the screen where he says here, he says, um, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came in the world to save what? Let's read it together. Of whom I am chief. How could Paul say that? Because I'm gonna tell you, there were some pretty nasty people back then. How could Paul say he's the worst of the sinners? There were people that were capable of murdering thousands. I'll tell you why. Paul could say I'm the chief of sinners because he understood in his heart he's already murdered. And he understood that in his heart it may not have been germinated to the point of actual murder yet, but in his heart, he's already done it. Maybe it just hadn't had the chance to be fertilized. Maybe that person over there it has had the chance to get fertilized. But do you understand the only difference between you and a murderer, it's not quality, it's quantity. Let me say that again. The only difference between you and a murderer is not quality, it's quantity. God says, watch out for that. Realize the difference. Now guys, listen, nobody can live up to the standard of Jesus. The Christian is a person who recognizes, I can't judge anybody because I'm just as broken as everybody. How do you know a person's become a Christian? Because they've come to see their own sin. How do you know somebody's not a Christian, but they're just religious? A religious person sees everybody else's sin. A religious person says, you know what's wrong with the world? You. Everybody else. A lot of Christian people act that way. But a true Christian is somebody who God has so confronted you with your own sin, frankly, you don't have time or the bandwidth to look at everybody else's. You got your own to deal with. And so, you know, you understand, you, you're, a, you're a person who says, man, I, I'm lost too. I need help. I need a savior. I need Jesus the Christ to come in and save my life because you realize that's by the way what the law of God is. Don't you see? The law of God wasn't meant to give you a standard and then say it's impossible for you to get to and, and kind of hold you to it. No, the law of God was to meant to show you that you can't do it. Let's look how Paul the apostle put it. Throw this next scripture up here. Look at what he says. Go ahead and throw this next scripture up. He says, therefore the law was our what? To bring us unto a savior. Don't you see what the law is meant to do? The law is meant to show you, you need a what? The law is the schoolmaster that brings you to Jesus so that you would be justified by trust. The Greek word is pistis. It means entrust. I trust Jesus. It's more than head knowledge. I trust him. And the Christian self-image is completely based on grace. So Jesus is saying here, you're a murderer if you harbor grudges. You're a murderer if you're indifferent to people. You're a murderer if you gossip. He says the law should show you that you're in trouble and that you need a savior. And then finally it says this, if you just write this down before Emma comes, don't ever let relationships around you fall apart. That's what Jesus is saying. When you see relationships in decay around you, Jesus says it's your job to go and try and solve them. 
He says it's your job to go and try and make it right. That's the job of a Christian. That we are supposed to bring healing relationships into the lives of people. Emma's gonna come, let's hear it for her. She's awesome. God desires of us connection, empathy, understanding, and harmony between one another. This is so important to him, and that's why Jesus said in verse 24, leave your gift at the altar, and first, go be a reconciler. And as he works a quality of character in us through the Spirit, here's what we do to become reconcilers to everyone. Here's what kingdom living in relationships look like. Write this down. We have to be quick to repent over our own relational brokenness. In other words, we have to be quick to take ownership. And let me be vulnerable for a second. Here's where I struggle with this. Instead of being quick to repent, I'm quicker to defend my own reasoning for someone else's brokenness instead of my own. Anyone else? It's so much easier to point the finger, right? but we have an active part of God's restoration work in making broken things whole. And when it comes to relational brokenness, our active part of repentance is tearing down the barriers, the walls, the pain and resentment and surrendering that to the feet of the Father and trusting that he picks up the pieces. But if instead, we choose to ignore it or pass it off, what it does is it imprisons us. We're like bound to it by chains. Ephesians 4.26 says it this way, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. What happens here is when we hang on to anger against one another, we actually give opportunity to the devil. When we harbor the anger and resentment in our heart, we do the devil's work for him. But it's up to us. We have to answer the question, do I wanna glorify my anger or God? And in this same chapter, it says that we as his followers must walk in a manner that is worthy before God. Now this walk is marked by our obedience to him, not our own desires to defend our own rights and advance our own agenda. And in the same chapter, again, Paul talks about our role in keeping the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And here's how we keep it. We keep it by our repentant, humble, forgiving attitude towards each other. And that naturally fulfills the gift of unity in the spirit. Because God actually never commands us to create unity. He's already done it by his spirit. Our duty is then to recognize it and keep it. We're called to be known for not how well we argue, not how right we are, but how we love one another. It was Jesus who said, the world is going to know who I am by the way that you, we the church, love one another. It's about God and his love that is revealed through us, and this is central to the way we heal relationships. So how do we do it? Write down this next point. We look to Jesus as the standard to live by. We let Jesus' reconciliation with us be our motivation. So what we have to do is we have to fix our eyes on Jesus and look to learn from him and his word to know where to start, to know what to do. 
Anyone remember the what would Jesus do bracelets? You guys remember that? Here's a picture if you've never seen one. I think the last person I saw wearing this was Kevin Manning at some point. But he might still have it on. But what this served as is it was a reminder for people to have motivation to attempt to act in a way that would demonstrate Jesus. So what what it would do is it'd be bracelet. What would Jesus do in this moment? Now, I'm not sure how effective those actually were, but what we can do is we can actually look at God's word for guidance when it comes to situations like this. And in Matthew 5, we can look to Jesus as he shows us a better way to reconcile relationships. And he's inviting us to be a part of it. So in Jesus's journey of teaching people this new way of life, there was a religious lawyer who came along and asked Jesus a question, and it happened to involve relationships. We see it in Luke 10, and it's a story known as the Good Samaritan. Now this parable, a parable is just a simple story that Jesus would use to teach and explain a spiritual truth to help people see the world through the eyes of heaven. And in this parable, what we see is Jesus revealing three important things about it, what it looks like to reconcile with a love like his. In Luke 10, Verse 25, it says that the religious lawyer asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Pretty good question. Jesus then asked him, well, what does the law say? Now he was a religious lawyer, so he knew the law perfectly and he answers this question perfectly. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now here's where things get interesting. After answering perfectly, the man ended up asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? In other words, who is it that I have to love? Now, I don't know about you, but I struggle to love people at times. Anyone? It's hard, right? Like we think about, you guys know the, the, like, the Karen in the, okay, if you don't know what it is, just type in what is Karen later when you go home. A Karen basically is anyone who causes trouble and causes a scene for like no reason in Target. You know what I mean? and, And then you're like, how the heck do I love her? or him, right? It's like super hard, but whether you know it or not, many of you find yourself asking the same question as the religious lawyer. And just like the lawyer, we try to justify why we shouldn't love someone. Well, we're just too different. Unfollow. This person deserves to be taken down, right? Like a reputation ruiner. This person doesn't forget, doesn't deserve my forgiveness. Why should I love them? Now Jesus is the real deal and he's real truth. He sees right through our questions. So here's how Jesus replies to the man. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Then a Levite, a temple assistant, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So there's this hurt man, beaten, gonna die on the side of the road. 
They didn't have hospitals or ambulance. They couldn't pick up the phone, call 911 for help. So when people were hurting or were sick, where they would go was the temple. So when Jesus is talking about a priest and a temple assistant, we could think of them as a pastor and a paramedic. And they had plenty of reasons why they shouldn't have stepped into this guy's mess. Right, the guy's bloody. I don't want blood on my clothes. I'm gonna go to the temple in the presence of God. I don't need blood on my clothes. Maybe they thought, not my problem. Well, the guy didn't even ask for help. If I help this guy, I'm gonna be late to church. So what they do is they just walk right on by. They see this man half dead on the side of the road and they just keep walking. But not only that, they crossed the road to avoid passing by the man who needed someone. The people who should have stopped didn't. And maybe you think about all the messiness of your relationships and you think, yeah, but I'm not part of the problem. Maybe they thought, yeah, that's his own problem. Right? I'm not the one who said that. I'm not the one who did this. I'm not the problem. And maybe you're right. Maybe you're not the problem. But maybe you're part of the solution. What Jesus is showing us is that we shouldn't be passive to people. And when it comes to healing relationships, it doesn't mean that we pass by on the other side just to avoid it but rather love steps into the mess and becomes part of the solution. Kind of like how God came down from heaven, stepped into our mess through his son Jesus and became the solution to our brokenness to him. What Jesus is showing us is that if you're not loving with action, then guess what you're not doing? You're not loving because love isn't passive and choosing not to do anything, it's choosing not to love. So church, how do we fight for our relationships? How do we love our people? We can't do it without Jesus. So we have to look to Jesus's reconciliation with us as our motivation to then do the same with others because it's a love that doesn't pass by but has stepped in and has taken action. Jesus, he continues this story and what he does here is he hits us with a plot twist. He says, but then a despised Samaritan came along where the man was. Jesus wanted to make it very clear that people despised Samaritans. He's saying the person you would at least expect to show up, shows up. And this person doesn't pass by on the other side. Here's what he did. He saw him and felt compassion for him. He didn't ignore the problem, he did something about it. The person you think of, the person who's the problem, that's who Jesus is saying, they're the ones who showed up. They're the ones who saw the man in pain. They're the the person who said, I'm not gonna pass by I'm gonna meet this person right where, where they are. I'm not gonna take a side and divide, but I'm gonna stand where Jesus stands with the hurting, where he stands and offers healing to the broken. See, Jesus doesn't draw lines to keep people out. Rather, he crosses lines to bring people in, and that's exactly what we see happening here with the Samaritan. 
because the Samaritans and, they, and the Jews did not get along. The Jews despised Samaritans. There was this full-fledged race war between the two groups. And it was even accepted and celebrated. They were on different sides of the line. The indifference and the resentment Shane was just talking about existed right here. It was this us versus them. Us versus the Samaritan. And the Samaritan said, no, I see something wrong here and I have to be part of the solution. And they might be on the other side of the line, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna cross the line and I'm just gonna sit with them in the mess. Jesus chose the Samaritan in this story because he wanted us to see that he offers a kind of love that crosses lines. It's the love that crosses lines to bring people in and it doesn't draw people out. Jesus is showing us how we heal relationships. The despised Samaritan was moved by compassion into action and scripture tells us that he takes the man He cleans him up, bandages his wounds, puts him in a hotel, cares for him. Then he goes out, he's gonna, he goes out to get money to pay for the hotel room for this guy. And he tells the hotel guy, desk desk manager, he's like, whatever it takes, care for this man. I'm gonna go get money and I'm gonna pay for anything that it takes for this guy. The Samaritan not only took action and crossed lines, he went the extra mile. And for us as followers of Jesus, we can't just give people a pat on the head and send them off their way. We do what people don't even ask for. Jesus used this parable as an example and guide to how we are supposed to take action in caring for one another. Jesus says that we are supposed to have a love for people that shatters expectations and goes the extra mile and continues to follow up with people. It's what he modeled to us. Jesus did whatever it took so that we could be reconciled with God. And the truth is, is we've all been the dead man in the story, sorry, the hurting man about to die on the side of the road. We've all been there before. And Jesus said, hey, I'm not just going to watch you suffer I'm gonna step into the mess. I'm gonna cross the line between heaven and earth. I'm gonna go the extra mile carrying the cross to die for you and me. It takes action, it crosses lines, and it goes the extra mile. That's the radical love of Jesus. And that same radical love is what God calls us to display to one another. So as we look at Jesus, He looks right back at us saying, you can do it. You can go after that person and heal that relationship because I am in you. So Jesus, he replied back to the religious lawyer and asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? And he replies, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus is so clear to us, go and do likewise. So which one are you? Are you the one who walks on by or are you the Samaritan who takes action, crosses lines and goes the extra mile? A Samaritan who was a victim of racism and hate embodied the love of God. 
See, the thing that broken relationships need is reconciliation. And every word of this story is a glimpse at the heart of Jesus, how he wants us to live in love in a world that is just plagued with darkness and division and brokenness. We have to get into the habit of looking to learn from Jesus. Because Jesus loved the outcast. He loved the people the world hated. He was a friend to sinners. He had a heart for the marginalized and the minority. And he even loves the person who wronged you or hurt you. There's no one on earth that's, that's exempt from the love of God. There's no one too far from God. There's no mistake too big for God's forgiveness. There's no addiction too strong for God's mercy. There's no race or language or skin color that's not represented in his kingdom. There's nothing in all of creation that disqualifies anyone from the love of God. And if our strive is to look more like Jesus, we then have to allow God's love to move through us. It's not just kind words, good vibes, and volunteering at church. Jesus said there's something more important. He said it in John 13, 35 to 36. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We serve a God of love. So we're called to mirror and reflect that. And when we see the world like Jesus, we see everything through the lens of truth and love. And if we believe in Jesus, then we ought to trust that he has paid the penalty for you and I. The penalty for every single time that we've fallen short of loving someone. Guys, relationships are hard and healing them is even harder. Now here's the glory to God though, when we do the hard thing, when we take part in healing relationships, it's an act of worship to the Lord. And that's your last point, always act as an act of worship unto the Lord. My last point here refers to verse 23 of 24 of Matthew 5, where Jesus said, leave your gift there in front of the altar. He says, just leave it. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. It was Jesus who said, what you do to others, you do the same to me. Mother Teresa was a great example of this. You guys know that she washed super dirty feet? Yeah, okay, she washed super dirty feet willingly and lovingly, but what motivated Mother Teresa to wash the feet of others was because she knew she was washing Jesus' feet while doing it. She knew she was honoring him by doing it. She was motivated because she thought of Jesus. Jesus was her focus. But if instead we let ourselves swell up with poison and resentment, towards someone, I know that sounds intense, it is. But what I'm about to explain, if it helps, I've been here before. When we let ourselves swell up with poison and resentment, here's what happens. We live in our flesh and we walk into a place like this, like church, and all we can think about 
is the person that we strongly dislike. And that's what happens when we don't go first to the person because we think, oh, they gotta hear this message. I really hope it spoke to them. You know what I mean? But God instead is like, no, you really need to hear this message so that you can be free. Leave your gift at the altar and go get right with your person. Jesus considers it far more important to be reconciled with a person than go and perform a religious duty. It's more important to Jesus that you own it before you drive to church. We cannot go on thinking that our service towards the Lord justifies bad relationships with people. It isn't honoring to him. Think about it, Jesus was the ultimate reconciler. And for us as his followers, we can't go on writing people off and at the same time stand in his presence. He isn't pleased, why? Because he loves that person. He doesn't hate them. And he wants us to go and make things right. We can't go on without reconciliation because the only reason we've been reconciled with God is because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in Romans 12, 18, he said, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. Healing a relationship with someone allows you to worship God freely. Worship is the key here. Going and making things right with people is worship to the Lord. He's pleased with it and he's honored with it. Shane's gonna give us our last point. Hey, was I right? Isn't she awesome? Praise the Lord. All right, so uh, when do we get started with all this? I just want to say this to you. The minute this service is over, when you stand up, listen, you all have schedules, you're all busy, everybody's very absorbed in what they're doing, but some of you are very shy and uh, scared of people, but do you know where to begin to practice this kind of transformation is you start immediately, like right now, when you engage with people leaving church and you learn to love. In fact, just write it down. I start practicing when? Immediately, yeah, now. You write down whatever you want, but right now, immediately, you get going. I wanna pray for you, Father. Thank you for each person here, every man and woman. Lord, I pray that these folks here would just know you, that they'd walk with you. Jesus, it's so cool how you change us. You take what really is worthless and you make it into something so valuable. Lord, we commit our lives to you just asking that as we leave here, that you'd continue to, as we work out our salvation, that you'd keep working in us to act according to your good pleasure. Father, we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.